From EAB, I'm Matt Pellish, and this is Office Hours. COVID-19 drastically changed the way the world does business. Everybody moved into a world of, of contactless interaction, streamlined services, anything from restaurants, retail stores, big businesses, mom and pop shops. Everybody modernized, mobilized their approaches to meet the needs of their customers and their communities. Likewise, the pandemic motivated a lot of colleges, universities, to update some of their own antiquated processes, their old systems, that were making basic transactions more difficult for their constituents who matter the most, their students. On today's episode, we welcome EAB's student success duo of Macy Fairfax and Ed Vennett to talk us through some of these updates. They're gonna discuss how the recent move to a more student-centered culture, it's new for many in higher education, but the approaches of virtual advising, revamping financial holes, streamlining support services, among a lot of other things, they're already paying dividends. Macy and Ed also discuss triaging student requests to reduce the touch points, the time it takes for a student to answer the questions that they need, making them actually feel more supported, more connected, even when everyone's online. Thanks for listening and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of EAB's Office Hours podcast. My name is Ed Bennett. I lead our student success research here at EAB. And my name is Misi Fairfax, and I focus on equity research. We recently spoke with you in a different podcast episode earlier this year about equity and anti-racism. Uh, highly suggest you go check that out. It was a great conversation. And so when we had the opportunity to get back on the, uh, I guess, the pod with you, uh, we jumped at the opportunity. Um, so, Misi, why don't you set up what we're going to talk about today? Yeah, the um, the pandemic has really challenged all of us in a lot of ways that we could not have imagined, uh, both physically, financially, mentally, and culturally. And in that, it's revealed a lot about the work that we kind of needed to do, maybe personally for ourselves, but then also within the higher ed realm. I can say that I'm on my 118th day of meditation, so I have done a lot to bring a sense of calm and to get a little bit um, introspective at this time. Um, and I know you've done a number of things as well. Yeah, and I think you're pointing out that not everything about the pandemic has been bad. We've adapted and learned new things that will be part of our lives going forward. Um, for me, a little bit of a fun experience. Uh, I live here in Washington, DC in kind of a garden style apartment community and don't didn't really know my neighbors prior to the pandemic. Well, early on in March, uh, we, one of my neighbors started playing a song outside every day at 6.45. It was an opportunity for everyone to come out, shake off the rest of the day, and get to know one another. Uh, we're now approaching day 200 of that, and it has been a really incredibly great tradition. Uh, I am so grateful for it, and I actually know my neighbors now, which is kind of a huge innovation. So long story short, not everything about the pandemic has been bad. And some of the things we want to talk to you today about are the innovations that higher ed is going through that they're going to want to keep in place. Uh, responses to the pandemic that yeah, maybe these are really good things we should have been doing all along, or maybe these were things that never occurred to us to do in the first place. But students have really responded to you positively, and we can't see ourselves not doing going forward. Absolutely. And let's take it back a little bit to when campuses first closed in March. There was a lot of focus about making sure folks were ready, the transition to remote or the virtual environment, a lot of quick shifts that campus leaders had to make. And there's probably, as many of us know, there's been a number of different shifts that you've, that we've personally have made, but then also higher ed leaders have made as well. Could you talk a little bit about what you've heard, um, Ed, over the last uh 
what, six, seven months now at this point and Mm -hmm. call out a couple of the trends or indicators that you're seeing out there. Yeah, there's a real moment in time that the spring semester caused, a before and after moment uh, for higher ed. Now, a lot of the big changes that happened this spring, of course, were that all the courses moved online. Uh, There's been pedagogical innovation left and right as instructors who never really had online courses or hybrid courses suddenly had to learn. We're not going to really cover that today because that is such a huge and worthy topic. It's deserving of its own set of research and its own uh, own content development right there. We can't possibly scratch the surface on how amazingly cool some of those ideas have been and how transformative it might be for higher rate going forward and how it actually deploys its own content. Instead, what I want to talk today about is how those innovations have advanced student support. Now, thinking back to the spring, uh, what was it like? Well, we suddenly all went home and all went on to Zoom. So we were in a situation where every student became an online student and every college became an online college in a way. What that forced us to do and revealed was just how unprepared many of us were for doing that. The good news is that schools have done so much over those course of those six months to fill those gaps, uh, to make it so that students can access services virtually online, over the phone, through Zoom call, whatever it might be. Many of these things really, really worked out well. Uh, we just never have thought to do them before. And they're gonna be permanent structures that we have going forward. They'll be part of what we do to support students. And ultimately, I think that's gonna make a big step forward in making us much more student-centered in how we approach students. You know, there's been a lot said about becoming a student-centered college or a student-centered university. In a lot of ways, the pandemic is forcing us to do that. Uh, maybe really for the first time uh, in serious regards. It's uh, We're not talking about it any longer. We're actually doing it. Ed, would you talk a little bit about what does that mean to be student-centered, right? What, what was student-centered before and what is student-centered now? Yeah, this is the great debate because Historically speaking, uh, universities are often built around the faculty. Uh, It's about how we teach programs and how we teach courses. And there's sort of an assumption that students come to us and uh, learn and learn and be molded by that structure. These are great structures, but oftentimes they're not structures that are centered around what the student's trying to get out of college. So there's a great debate about what a student-centered university really means. And uh, again, we don't really have time to cover that all today. But from my world and your world, where we talk a lot about student success, being a student-centered university is uh, akin to providing better customer service if you're willing to go that far and call students customers. We don't necessarily have to uh, in this regard, but it's that concept. Are we making it unnecessarily hard for them to engage with something that we want them to engage with? And if so, why? Does that make any sense? Well, higher ed has a tradition of just simply letting things kind of go and go and go uh, if they're legacy processes or something that was put in place a while ago without full examination, not necessarily because anybody's negligent, but simply because there's other things to focus on. And I think a lot of these student-centered problems do originate from the fact that there was some legacy process put in place 30 years ago. That is a hoop that a student has to jump through and no one's ever really thought, why is that hoop there? How do we make it go away? So cleaning up a lot of that is in fact what Uh, the spring and summer have been about. And uh, we've got some stories that we want to tell. Absolutely. And I think this is also a a good place to talk about and mention that the social justice movement and everything that happened with BLM as well was a great impetus for this as well, because voices 
um, who were historically silenced or weren't speaking up in the same way that they had are now speaking up in terms of the needs and the supports that they uh, want or desire. And campus leaders are now fielding those requests and, and, and are listening uh, with a different ear. It's been fascinating on the calls that you and I have done together uh, with folks who are doing this exact work. What a, a tight intersection, uh, how much of a Venn diagram of overlap there is between folks that are working on making their campuses less systemically racist and the folks that are working on making their campuses more accessible for the purposes of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And these two things seem to intersect on so many of our calls. So we're gonna try to talk about these things today in terms of both lenses. The push to get students re-enrolled and registered and also the push to be uh, more equitable in our approach and removing uh, those systemically racist things that we're suddenly uncovering uh, and talking about maybe fully for the first time. So Misi, this is all a work that we're doing together in preparation for Connected, which is our big student success conference that we do each year. Uh, this year, it's going to be in December in the internet, yes. uh, as I like to joke. You like to say that. <laughs> uh, but I mean, everything is, is virtual now. Uh, so if you are a Navigate member and you uh, want to attend that conference, please do check it out on our website. Uh, we'll be talking in depth about a lot of these issues, much, much more so than we can do today. But we kind of wanted to provide you with a little bit of a preview of some of the things that we would be talking about in the hopes of whetting your appetite. And also, uh, if you happen to have a really cool idea that is associated with anything we're talking about today, please do reach out uh, and we would love to chat with you about it. Research plug. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, um, uh, let's dive right into that. Uh, maybe we can start off a little bit by just talking about some of the big themes that we've heard that's kind of touched both of our work. Mm -hmm. I think there's probably three of them that we should talk about, uh, and, you know, we should riff on, uh, here. One is, uh, talking about a lot of the administrative barriers that were removed. Uh, you mentioned last spring that one of the big pushes was simply engaging with students who we're gone. <laughs> we hadn't had a chance to engage with in person because there's no more in person. Um, well, that started revealing all sorts of challenges that students were going to have to navigate to simply get enrolled in the fall. So that's thing one. Uh, thing two was, in my mind, I saw campuses understood how dependent they were upon, for a physical student walking through a physical door with a physical piece of paper uh, on a campus. No one had really thought too much about that. Uh, at least in a lot of places, certainly some schools, but uh, repeatedly folks mentioned being surprised that, gosh, we, we didn't really realize that you couldn't actually complete this process without coming to see us. Maybe some schools even thought that was a good thing. But what happens when that's no longer possible? You know, how do you set the, those up uh, a way for a student to get things taken care of when they're not there? And the last thing I'll say is there's a theme here around uh, proactive advising and holistic support, which is a topic that we should probably cover in an entirely different podcast in the future. But the idea of pre presenting opportunities uh, for students to simply get all of their questions solved at once uh, with someone who understands all of their challenges. Uh, and we'll talk a little lot about that with regards to equity in just a moment, I'm hoping, because that is so much about building trust with the student as well, uh, which is such a key component of building relationships. So those are the three things that I would say have been uh, themes, early themes from our research uh, you and I have done together that have emerged. You want to add anything to that? Uh, which of those three seems the most interesting to you or maybe the most relevant to your work? Um, honestly, I would probably say it's about 
uh, you were talking about, uh, specifically to advisors, but I would say it's about expanding access to su support. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would talk specifically about that because in terms of those scholar programs or those niche programs for uh, black minority males or minority initiatives, a lot of times that's the type of support you see. Um, and there's that, the fact that we're having conversations about the expansion of those types of support structures means that there's a deeper understanding of some of the systemic belongingness, uh, confidence building, support and networks that we need to, to build for these students. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a big theme from the work that you've discussed with me is, is building connections. Mm -hmm. uh, we've known for a long time, going back decades, for student success research, that engagement with the campus is a huge deal in keeping and retaining a student. And we also know through the equity work that that's a harder thing to do if you feel minoritized in some way. Uh, and it is not a campus that is particularly welcoming to you. You're going to have your guard up a lot of times. When you do find someone you can connect with, it can be a transformative experience. And you and I have heard you know, countless numbers of stories from people who have had that experience either with students or when they themselves were a student and stayed in school because they met someone who encouraged them and mentored them and kept them engaged in the campus. Absolutely. I mean, it's a concept of each one teach one, right? And um, I can even just speak from my experience from under um, my undergraduate um, experience is that it was a dance troupe, an African dance troupe that I was a part of that actually got me into the Trio McNair program that got me into uh, going on to pursue a graduate degree. So you see how transformative a lot of that work um, can be and how much, how beneficial it is for as folks are getting those opportunities to reach back and provide that support as well. And I'll, you know, I'll, I'll say a little bit about just quickly about um, in terms of lived experiences or folks who are understanding of this backgrounds, there is always that kind of mindset to make sure that there is that support for all those that come behind you. And I think we're starting to see that lived out and talked about in a lot of the conversations that we've had. So let's, uh, let's talk more about this here, uh, because this is a really important moment. And we're talking about lessons from the pandemic. But one of the lessons is that need for holistic support. Mm -hmm. You need to have human beings on your campus, or in this case, in your virtual campus, who students can reach out to and have that connection with and feel like they can get their myriad of interconnected problems addressed. Uh, a bad experience for a student or a customer for that matter is having to bounce around to many different offices to have all those questions answered, to not have that holistic support. Something that I heard a lot on our calls was how this environment, this Zoom environment, uh, gives us a window into people's lives that we've never had before. You know, I have joked how um, I bet that you can't obviously can't tell on a podcast, but I've got a background here that is full of fossils, uh, many of which I collected during grad school. Uh, Misi has periodically uh, once a week shifted her workstation inside her apartment. So she's constantly got a different background. In fact, she's got to keep it fresh. <laughs> <laughs> you literally have a different perspective every week uh, on, on work. Uh, and But think about that from a student standpoint. We're now seeing windows into their lives and faculty realizing that students are approaching them with challenges that they are not capable of dealing with, either because they haven't been trained on such or they just know that they're kind of uncomfortable dealing with that and they don't know what to do with the student, um, has made them much more empathetic to the idea that we actually do very much need some coaches or support people on campus that can provide that for students. So one of the big changes has been uh, an elevation, if you will, of this concept of having a coach or an advisor or whatever you might name it 
uh, for a student to connect with, perhaps assigned to a student uh, to solve their challenges. And could you speak a little bit more about how important connections like that are for equitable outcomes as well, especially for students who are uh, students of color or from a lower income background or first gen background? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure many on the line are familiar, like a lot of this goes into where we talk about conversations about high impact practices, right? So we know that the more that there is an ability for a student to be mentored by a faculty member, um, that reaps uh, benefits in terms of what they look like in terms of their scholastic um, activity, in terms of whether they go on to do research. Um, we also know that if they're connected with co-curricular uh, activities or they have an internship, um, if they're provided a network through that faculty member to uh, go out into the, the workspace and get that experience, that's extremely beneficial and um, confidence boosting as well. Um, and then the other thing I would add as well is that anytime that they can get kind of hands-on uh, work, um, it's, it's, it's been kind of tenfold in terms of what they share, not only with their own peer group, but also within their own families. Um, one of the things that we always talk about in terms of talking about equity is that it's not only that you're benefiting the student, but a lot of times you're benefiting the parent and the, the families as well. Um, so we see a lot of that in those in those conversations, um, and we've heard a lot of that over the summer as we were doing our research. That's such an interesting point, and I hope one that we'll be able to do uh, another podcast on the future, which is to go really deep on virtual advising, all the benefits, uh, all the things that have uh, uh, that, that stand out as opposed to the traditional in-person nine-to-five meeting. The ability to advise a family is certainly one of them. You know, you're sitting there with your parents talking to an advisor about your financial circumstances, well, gosh, isn't that a much more efficient structure than making the student play kind of the telephone game? Uh, hey, I just heard this from an advisor and you know we have to do these things and the parent doesn't really necessarily understand what's being asked of them. And there's that's just one example of the many different advantages that the virtual advising environment provides. Um, so much so that I do think that it's worthy of, it's, it's kind of its own half an hour that we do on that uh, in the future. So let's switch gears a little bit on this though, because uh, as schools became more virtual in their ability to support students, they also were discovering, well, there's different tiers of need <laughs> that we have here. Mm -hmm. Some students really do need to have multiple in-depth conversations about some really complex issues associated with what they're doing in school, what their career aspirations might be, whatever it might be. Others have a 30 second question that does not need a 30 minute appointment to solve. And so in the course of moving virtual, we also saw kind of our second observation, which was that there were these um, front doors that, that schools were building for themselves such that students could, uh, or, or lobbies, if you will, such that students could go to uh, a, a central spot and get whatever question they have answered. It struck me a couple of years ago, someone mentioned to me, uh, hey, Ed, you know, we have a challenge here in that a uh, student doesn't always know where to go to for an answer. There's no phone number for the university, so to speak. And instead, they bounce around places back and forth trying to get uh, their questions answered. Well, that doesn't work if you're not on campus. So let's talk a little bit about some of the structures that we saw that got set up uh, to deal with that kind of first line of problems, first line of questions. And I don't know if you heard any really interesting stories from our calls that you'd like to relay right now, but uh, but I've got a couple collected that I'd like to go over. Yeah, please do. All right, so uh, let's just start talking about some of the basic problems that students do want to get solved. And I've got a quick list here that I made. Um, and again, you know, these aren't, this isn't a universal 
set of issues. This is just sort of giving everybody a sense of what we're talking about here. Um, students often asking basic advisement questions. How do I register for classes? Should I take this class, this class? When is my registration window? Um, how do I do that? How do I get into that system? A lot of questions about financials and financial aid. Students don't really understand the difference between the financial aid office and student accounts. It's all just the money people to them. And so navigating the relationship between those two offices can be a challenge. A lot of registrar questions, as you might imagine, paperwork to get reinstated. That's a thing that you haven't been able to do. Um, or maybe you just have some sort of um, you know, thing that you need to get checked off before you're allowed to come back to school or to get registered for classes. A lot of questions about housing. Uh, a lot of questions about academic petition, petitions, again, trying to get reinstated for courses. And, and of course, the, the main one was, how are we gonna be open in this fall? What are we gonna do about COVID? You know, a lot of questions like that. And, and what we found in our conversations is that the populations who are more likely to have a number of these questions ended up being your typical equity population. So whether it was Black, Latinx, rural students, um, first-gen students, low-income st students. Um, and would you expound upon a little bit about kind of the creative solutions or what campuses mm -hmm. were putting, um, putting in place? Yeah, I don't know that these are rocket science. They're just more needed to exist. And uh, the notable factor is that schools are saying to us, we're not gonna, we're not gonna take them down. We're gonna keep doing this stuff because we see the value. But it wasn't that complicated. They really did create phone numbers for the university or the college. And they might have a bank of student workers uh, fielding phone calls and then routing, dealing with basic questions themselves and then routing more complex questions to specialists or to the actual support offices. You can accomplish the same thing with the central inbox. We heard a lot about those. Um, and then I actually even heard a couple stories about creative uses of Zoom uh, to create lobby-like situations where a student could log in and then have someone come and collect them, uh, answer their questions uh, in this virtual environment. What's notable about this is that some of these are pretty basic questions that are gonna get asked again and again and again. So you could actually use lower cost, lower amount of time solutions to address them. Something like a student call center or something like um, you know a quick email reply. Uh, and I think it's notable that people really like this. The students attached to it, they use these services. I heard some stories about them overusing these services at times. Uh, so much so that school has, school had to rethink what they were doing a little bit. But the presence of having just a, a welcoming spot where someone can go and get problems solved is seems like something we should keep doing going forward. Yeah, and yeah, and I was going to add that you know everything that Ed just listed out is a multifaceted approach, right, to communication because what they knew, and as he mentioned, is that there were some students that they just couldn't get in contact with because they didn't have the correct information. There are other ones where we've heard how inventive they were in sending out postcards to make sure that they could get them connected. Um, if once they did get connects with them, it was whether it was Zoom lobbies, if they had that capability. We know a lot of Latinx um, students are dependent on their smartphones, I think upwards of 25%. So I think that the, one of the bigger things here is that it's not one way to do it. It's multiple ways to do it and to reach the student. And as I think this circles back um, wonderfully to what Ed said earlier about this is the student-centric piece, right? Wow, what a really important point that is. Offering multiple different options for engaging with support, or I should say multiple different modalities. Because what we're not seeing anywhere at any point here is that this is the death of in-person interactions. Um, not at all. These are supplements, too. Uh, it's just in the past, in-person was the default and in some cases the expectation. Uh, now we understand that we'll have 
a lot better success if we offer uh, multiple different avenues for students to come and engage with us. And surely there will be uh, some equity boost that we get out of that as well, because we will no longer be excluding students that can't engage or are reluctant to engage with the one option we give them. Now you have multiple options. Hopefully one of these will work for what you need for yourself with your problem. So I think it's a really interesting uh, uh, development here. And, you know, I, I think also relate to yourself as a human being, you know, that's sort of something that we preference, just having optionality uh, in these regards. So quickly to summarize, and then maybe we can move on to our, our, our third point that we should make here. Uh, so what have we talked about thus far? We've talked about the move towards more holistic style support necessitated by the complex and interconnected problems of the pandemic and encouraged by the need of students in our equity-based environments uh, for that kind of care. We also saw that a lot of those issues could be handled with um, lighter weight, less expensive question ans uh, uh, answering mechanisms that might actually themselves make the school more accessible to support things like a central phone number or an email, like a Zoom lobby. The third big thing here that I think we heard during our, our calls, and I'd love to hear some of your thoughts about this stuff was, you know, we're talking a lot about solving problems and challenges. What if the problems and challenges didn't exist at all? And how many of these things that we put in front of students that they have to navigate this complex maze are necessary in how many of them are not? How many of them are legacy processes that someone put into place a long time ago that we never really reconsidered until now? And it took a pandemic to make us rethink. Maybe that's not something we want to do with those students. Um, and, you know, maybe you can also talk to me a little bit about uh, the importance of that work from an equity lens as well. Uh, thinking about all the barriers it takes to get from a student from either high school to the first day of classes or say from their first year of college to the second year of college, uh, it's a lot. Definitely. So uh, a lot of times when our students come up on our campuses and we're talking specifically about students of color, um, we realize that they already have this kind of mindset of feeling that they don't belong. Um, and at, at that point are pretty much kind of going through a idea of confirmation bias. So anytime we put something up that makes it hard for them to get through, even as simple as it may seem for those who have kind of gone through college and, and have know the processes in and out, it just recreates within, um, within themselves this idea that they don't, uh, should not be here, or maybe they shouldn't return. Um, so it just reinforces uh, a mindset that we don't want to re reinforce among our, our student groups, especially when we're talking about Black Latinx. And so, when we think about something coming up as an administration barrier, a registration hold, and other things of the like, we have to be very mindful of what that means and how damaging that could be to our students, especially the student populations we want to keep and, and encourage them to graduate on. Yeah, it's so interesting because there's sort of a, a, an old school mentality in higher ed that making students go through, all, jump through all those hoops somehow like builds character is an educational experience of some sort, teaches them to be adults. Um, when in reality, that's gonna be true for some students. And in other students, it's just gonna be a, yeah, I mean, this is just more evidence that I didn't belong here in the first place, so I'm out. You know, I'm not gonna jump through all those hoops because why, why should I do that? Uh, and so that's, that's kind of, critically important, I think, maybe maybe overlooked angle for schools that are really trying to address their systemic racism. 
So let's talk about what some of those things might be, because uh, I think it's going to be more uh, apparent to our audience if we make it concrete and real. I've got a list here. Uh, surprisingly, here's another list. <laughs> here we go. Yeah. Um, so maybe we could talk about uh, these in, in chunks. The first two I want to talk about are tests. Uh, either the SAT or the ACT for incoming students or placement tests for incoming students that might not be college ready. Uh, it became very difficult this, this uh, spring and summer to take said tests. Uh, they had to be proctored. Uh, if you hadn't done those things already, um, the chances that you'd be able to get that done were kind of a lot lower, maybe impossible, depending on where you're located and what your circumstances are. So we heard on our calls, there were plenty of schools that were simply just waiving their SAT and ACT requirements. Now, that was a thing that was already kind of in, in the ether, if you will, uh, for the last couple of years because uh, schools just moving away from testing. Uh, but it was interesting to see how many of them jumped much more into that um, and might even consider making that a permanent change going forward. It just required the pandemic to give them a nudge. Similarly, placement tests have been much maligned uh, over the years as a not terribly effective instrument for truly assessing a student's college readiness in math or writing. And you and I heard many stories of schools that had replaced uh, what they would normally use a placement test for with a homegrown instrument, say a writing sample for placing you into college writing, or simply just looking at the student's high school grades and using those to place them into courses. Um, we know that these are, especially with the placement tests, uh, important equity plays because of prior work that we've done on this, looking at uh, developmental education and equity. So Misi, maybe you could talk a little bit about how this reform around placement tests actually can help a school advance their equity agendas, close their gaps. Yeah, well, I'm sure many folks who are listening today realize that that disproportionately impacts our minority or minoritized populations. So when it comes to actually the placement within these uh, dev ed, uh, dev math, dev English, disproportionately we're seeing Blacks, Latinx um, in those classes. As you can imagine with the slip that we experienced in the high and over high school and in the spring, that was gonna worsen for many of these students um, and would have added time to their degree, which we know then compounds and results in their inability for many to actually reach graduation day. So the fact that they rolled back a lot of these um, testing requirements is a huge step up. And honestly, we've seen folks um, on the far end who actually went to, as far as to say, we will provide you with um, you can self-report your high school GPA, right? We believe in you. And I think there's a lot of, there's something to be said where you know that they've made it to your door and the, the onus that you put on yourself as an institution to help catapult them through. And then also the belief that you give in themselves to them within themselves to do the work that they yeah, need to do the work. it's interesting that we've heard uh, some schools that had already made the move away from testing that were beginning to see equity impacts uh, because they had placed fewer students into no credit uh, development-led courses, uh, they instead place them in, say, a co-curricular pathway or something with supplemental instruction. And they were, in fact, seeing the results. This had been something they'd done prior to the pandemic, and it gave them the confidence to move forward and make it the really way that they did it, you know, the whole way that they did it going forward. And I suspect we'll see more schools doing this. This is going to be something that we might actually be dealing with uh, for a couple of years now. If you think about the fact that students in high school right now might have several mental learning loss compared to their, their brethren from past uh, past years, simply because they weren't really in school. Uh, and a lot of cases might not really be in school right now in the fall. So how is that gonna impact college readiness going forward? Uh, let me turn um, 
uh, maybe to the last thing I want to talk about as far as a barrier that, uh, or set of barriers, and we've already alluded to it. Um, there were a lot of paperwork issues that students had to resolve physically to get done on campus. And I'll just list off a few things here uh, and talk about what schools did here. Because uh, I think stuff's fascinating. A lot of this stuff is, is truly, you know, just modernizing the institution to the 21st century. Uh, so things like all the processes associated with financial aid, if they aren't fully online and the student can't get all their answers online, that's something that probably schools should take a look at, streamline that. We saw a lot of uh, forcing of that happen over the course of the summer and spring because it just simply had to. Similarly, the registration process and all the holds that might come associated with that. In a lot of cases, people just flat out waive the holds, maybe even remove them forever. If it was a student account hold, we heard schools raising thresholds. Um, again, these were changes that schools have been making for a while to help them make it easier for students to register. Now they became essential during the pandemic and some schools won't go back. Housing deposits became a barrier <laughs> this summer because, well, we wanted students to register for housing that they weren't sure they were gonna use. Schools waived the housing deposits to uh, encourage students to actually uh, move forward with the process of uh, coming to campus. And I think we already mentioned this uh, a couple times already, but uh, I was surprised to hear how often it was still a very manual process to do course reinstatements. So if a student got dropped for non-payment, you'd have to actually go to each of your instructors, get a form signed that uh, approved you to be entering your classes. Schools that still had this, and it seems like such a legacy process, but some schools that still had this in place uh, eliminated the paperwork and centralized the process. So what do you, what do you sort of take as an overall arc here? I, I see some themes, uh, and a lot of themes here are, if it was paper, remove it into online. If it was something you had to actually show up for an office to do, we're gonna make it easy for you to just call us or interact with us electronically. And to me, I take that as, as very um, much more welcoming as a, a, a student to an institution, particularly if I'm now engaging with you like I engage with pretty much every other service in my life uh, where there has been these components already. What are your takes uh, based on what we've talked about today? Yeah, well, I would probably say that it's about the personalization of the experience for the student, right? So um, in many ways, we talked about making sure there's equitable support and equitable communication, right? Just making sure that we're providing students exactly what they need as they need it. Um, I think that's right, but I also think we have to be very uh, pointed in terms of how we support our rural students, how we support our black students, how we support our Latinx students. Um, I think there's a lot of work to unpack there, but I'm excited because I see how universities are becoming much more student-centric and are really truly putting students at the center of all the work that they're doing. And um, the last thing I'll add too is just like the personal connections. Mm -hmm. um, one of the conversations that we had, or many of the conversations we had over the summer were about the personal connections that they made with the students, whether they had them before or they deepened throughout. And I think that's gonna be very meaningful in the way that we um, kind of continue to expound upon this work. Yeah, and I think that's a great point to wrap it up on because won't it be ironic if we look back at this whole experience and it turns out that social isolation was the thing that got us more connected. <laughs> uh, and honestly, that's a possible yeah. outcome here. Uh, so long story short, uh, while the pandemic is terrible, we all hate it, some good will come of it. Uh, there will be schools that have gotten stronger as a result of having to deal with these challenges. And a lot of this stuff was challenges that had to be fixed in the past uh, that were simply never fixed. A lot of them are new challenges that we hadn't fully considered. And a lot of it are things that we might have done a little bit of in the past, but because of our pandemic needs or our drive to be more 
inclusive, uh, and less systemically racist, we're going to fix as a result of all of this. So in some ways, this is a terrifying time. And in other ways, this is an incredibly encouraging time and a very optimistic time looking forward. So I hope everybody will take that as a message. Um, commitment from us to you, we're going to continue to work on these issues and deploy even better insights, we hope, across the course of the fall uh, as we learn more about these things and uh, catalog more of the lessons of the pandemic. So please do stay tuned for all that. Thanks for listening to us today. We had a great time interacting with each other and, um, and talking with you and sharing our ideas. Uh, and look forward to uh, doing this again with UBC sometime soon. Yep, we're all in this together. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. Join us again next week when Ed is back. He's joined by our friend Christina Hubbard to continue today's conversation with a dive into the virtues of virtual advising. Until then, for Office Hours of EAB, I'm Matt Pellish.